Hello, and welcome to Giants of Gene Therapy. I'm Hans-Peter Kiem, President of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. My guest today is another true giant in our field, the co-inventor of CRISPR-Cas9 for gene editing and 2020 Nobel Prize laureate in chemistry, Dr. Jennifer Doudna. Dr. Doudna has been at UC Berkeley since 2002. She's a professor in the departments of molecular and cell biology chemistry, and she's the Li Ka-Shing Chancellor's Professor of Biomedical Science. She's also the president and co-founder of the Innovative Genomics Institute and has been a Howard Hughes investigator since 1997. Dr. Doughton has received numerous awards and honors across the world. Outside of her continued work on CRISPR technologies in the lab, she's a leader in the public discussion of the ethical implications of genome editing for human biology and societies. She will be a keynote speaker at this year's ASGCT annual meeting in May, talking about CRISPR chemistry and applications in the clinic. Welcome, Dr. Doudna. It's a great pleasure to speak with you, especially today on International Women's Day. So, Jennifer, tell us a bit about growing up in rural Hilo. I grew up in a yeah, rural town in Hawaii, very rainy place. It's not the kind of place you think about when you imagine a Hawaiian vacation. Um, and it was an amazing upbringing because it was an opportunity to experience the natural world. It's where I got excited about science in the first place. And um, it's where I first started thinking about why organisms evolve the way they do. And it in the end, it's all about DNA. And of course, we heard about, you know, when your father, you know, gave you a book by James Watson. You know, that's, I think, how it started out, or at least there was some of the initial uh, uh, time. Is there any other science in the family, your sisters? No science in the family. No, I've got, my family is preachers, lawyers, and teachers. Oh, Okay. <laughs> So how then did you, I mean, who encouraged you then to pursue this career in science? What were the next steps for you? I don't know if anyone really encouraged me uh, in the beginning. It was really my own thinking that would, you now I kind of remember thinking in early years of high school that it would be exciting to be a scientist someday. I couldn't quite, I didn't quite know what that even was, but sounded interesting. Um, I, I imagined being able to spend my career figuring things out, and it just sounded like an amazing line of work. And then, of course, I did end up having a number of people who encouraged that interest once they became aware of it. So my, my dad was one of them, for sure. My uh, high school chemistry and biology teachers were both encouraging. And then, of course, when I got to college, I, uh, you know, ended up with a number of mentors who gave me a, a lot of confidence in my ability to pursue my interest. So how did you pick uh, your, your college, Pomona College? Well, I, you know, my parents had gone to Oberlin College in Ohio. That mm -hmm. was immediately off my list. I couldn't imagine quite going to uh, uh, Ohio from Hawaii. On the other hand, I did like the idea of a liberal arts education. My parents were in very um, you know, supportive of that, pursuing that kind of a college experience. And we had family friends who had gone to Pomona, both of them. And uh, they they said, you know, they they said great things about Pomona's program, especially in science. Both of our friends were um, medical doctors. And so when I looked into Pomona's program, especially in chemistry and biochemistry, 
They were one of the very few undergraduate programs back in the early 1980s when I was applying to college who had a program for undergraduates in biochemistry. So that was one of the factors that was very important in my choice. So then beyond college, you know, obviously we're thinking about graduate school. What was your thinking there? Um, what, what lab you wanted to join? I, you know, I had a great experience in college doing research in a, um, at one of my professor's labs. And in that project, I was working on soil bacteria and understanding how these soil bacteria communicate with each other and figure out how to survive under starvation conditions. And, you know, like many, I guess, uh, students, you know, I, I, I thought, well, that's what I'll do for the rest of my career. And uh, so I went to graduate school thinking that I wanted to work on some aspect of the chemistry of cell-cell communication. And, um, you know, but then when I got to, to graduate school, I, of course, my eyes were opened to all the other exciting things going on. And I ended up having the great fortune of doing a lab rotation in the lab of Jack Shostak and his passion for origin of life questions, understanding how RNA molecules might have been involved in the early evolution of life on the planet was so interesting and exciting to me that I, I dropped everything else and that's what I wanted to do. That's wonderful. Now, of course, then you also moved for your postdoc. You move. You worked with another Nobel laureate. Right. So, uh, yeah, and I, when I was finishing up my graduate work, I felt that uh, at that time, at the in the project I was working on was focusing on how RNA molecules could have the ability to replicate and how they might have done that in a, you know, a primordial or, or RNA type of a world. And um, at the time, we didn't know anything about the structures of RNA molecules, 3D structures. And in fact, most people thought RNA mostly didn't have 3D structure to it, right? It just was sort of a string-like molecule. And so I ended up, I, I did, felt like I really wanted to pursue the question of, you know, does RNA, is it capable of assuming a three-dimensional shape? I was working on catalytic RNAs called ribozymes. And so the question was, you know, do these ribozymes have defined 3D shapes analogous to the way that protein enzymes are structured. And so there wasn't anybody working on that at the time. Just there wasn't mm -hmm. anybody that, that I could go to for that kind of training. But I thought, well, if I want to work on that, I should go to the very best RNA biochemistry uh, lab that I can find. And who, who would be better than Tom Check? So that's where I went to do my postdoc. Yeah. I was, of course, probably also uh, wonderful uh, being in Colorado. That's also where you met your husband, correct? That's right. Yeah. Jamie Kate was a student in the Boulder, uh, Colorado program at the time. Yeah. So was there a scientific connection then? Was he working on something similar or? Yeah, well, not originally, no, but he got very interested in the this uh, question of, you know, RNA structure. And we ended up, you know, working together on the crystal structure of this um, part of the group one self-splicing intron called the P4P6 domain. So we absolutely did have a great uh, scientific collaboration there. Wonderful. So your next step was Yale. Um, and how, how many years did you spend at Yale? Right. So I got hired at Yale in 94. That's where I started my, my academic uh, independent career. And I was there eight years, eight wonderful, wonderful years. It was a fabulous place to be 
I was um, learning structural biology at the time, and it was just an amazing group of people with people like Tom Stites and Paul Siegler and Fred, uh, let's see, uh, who else was there at the time? Oh, well, <laughs> Axel Brunger, of course, yeah, I uh, was there. And uh, there was quite a, quite a number of junior uh, people also who were in those labs who were in training. I mean, it was just an incredible group of people. So I had that, that uh, good fortune of working with all of them. And, um, you know, and I couldn't have imagined actually leaving uh, Yale, except that, you know, we had the opportunity to move together, Jamie and I, to the University of California, Berkeley. And of course, that was just a, you know, a very attractive opportunity. Yeah. So that gets us, you know, to the CRISPR, CRISPR-Cas is probably a story. At what point were you, did you first hear about CRISPR and CRISPR-Cas? It must have been, I don't know, I think it was around 2006 or 2007 when I first heard about it right. uh, from Jill Banfield, who was a colleague of mine, is a colleague of mine here at Berkeley, who was um, at the time one of the very first labs to discover CRISPRs. You know, she was working on bacterial metagenomics, sequencing bacterial DNA from large populations. And of course, coming across lots of examples of CRISPR sequences, which are the natural immune systems found in these bacteria. So there were other people though, right, working on CRISPR already at that time, you know, Eric Sontheimer and Rudolf Barangu. And did you have any connections to those scientists? I did. Yeah. So uh, we had, you know, and this again, full credit to Jill here, you know, Jill uh, Banfield in those days was holding an annual CRISPR meeting at Berkeley. And we would invite everybody in the field that was working and it would be about 40 people. <laughs> All their students, you know, every, everybody was was about 40. And um, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was amazing. You know, those were those were really fun meetings where people were just trying to figure out, you know, in the very early days, what were these systems doing? How did they operate? Where were they found naturally? What was the you know range of functions that they had? All those really fundamental questions. Now, was was there already this? Did anybody think about using that sort of you know, system for editing, or did that all come later? Well, I think in those early days, you know, the questions were pretty fundamental. They were really about, you know, what, what is the biology of these systems and right. what are they doing in their native hosts? That being said, it was certainly, um, you know, I think on, on the minds of, of a number of us that, you know, these were there were some very useful proteins in there that could, you know, cut up RNA, cut DNA, that, you know, these, these kinds of fundamental enzymatic activities could be very useful as tools. Yeah, that brings me right straight to your you know, science publication with Emmanuel Charpentier. How this was a very short period of time. I think you you only met in 2011, I believe, right? And then maybe tell us a little bit about how this came about, and and then who was involved in that work. It was a meeting of the American Society of Microbiology. So I had been invited to give a talk in a session on CRISPR, and. Um, I sort of had, you know, debated, should I go to this meeting? I am not, I don't, I'm not really not a microbiologist. Maybe I'll feel ridiculous, you know, at this meeting. But um, but it was in Puerto Rico, nice place. So I, I just, I, I went. And uh, that's where I met Emmanuelle Charpentier. She was speaking in the same session. 
And of course, I knew her name. Uh, I had, had been reading her her papers. You know, she had published at the time uh, certainly one, and may, maybe have been more than one, but one very prominent paper on CRISPR in which she had been investigating a protein called Cas9 and how it might work in its natural host bacterium. And um, yeah, so the, we we met at the conference and we started talking about the possibility of working together to figure out the actual biochemical activity of Cas9, as well as its molecular structure. And that seemed like a project that would be right in the sweet spot of the expertise of both of our labs. Now, she was already in Sweden at that time, right? And then her postdoc was still in Austria. That must have been a very complicated collaboration. How, yeah. how did you manage that? <laughs> yeah, thank goodness for the internet. Um, yeah, so we had... We had a yeah we had a, one student that was Chris Chylinski was Emmanuel student working in Vienna, Austria. Uh, Emmanuel herself was at Umea University in Sweden, so she was up north. And then uh, on the Berkeley side, there was Martin Yinek in my laboratory, who was a postdoc at the time, and an undergraduate student Mickey Hauer, who joined him for the summer that that year. And uh, yeah, so those those uh, those that team started working together. In those days, we were using Skype. It was before before right. Zoom was a thing, and um, you know, just they were communicating their data and talking over Skype occasionally, and somehow it worked. So tell us maybe a little bit about when, when did you come across? I mean, the tracer RNA that this was so critical. I mean, at what stage did you realize? Oh, that's it. Well, Emmanuel's lab had originally discovered the tracer RNA, and they actually did that in collaboration with Jörg Vogel. So with Jörg's lab, they had been doing uh, deep sequencing of RNAs in the bacterium. This uh, host is called Streptococcus pyogenes. Mm -hmm. It's a human pathogen that has a CRISPR-Cas9 uh, system encoded in its genome. And so they had found that in addition to the CRISPR RNA, which is important for directing Cas9 to a specific DNA sequence for cutting, that the, the bacterium also had a second RNA that they named tracer that was important for maturation of the CRISPR RNA. In other words, processing it to the right length so that it was functional. And so that was a paper they had published in 2011, and um, or maybe it was 2010. Anyway, it was right, right before we met mm -hmm. at the conference. And so that was uh, a very important initial starting point for the project because when we started to do biochemical experiments with Cas9, initially we weren't able to observe any DNA cleavage activity. And it wasn't until we added the tracer RNA to the mix. So both the, you know, that sort of made us uh, aware that both the CRISPR and the tracer RNA had to be present with Cas9 to get DNA cutting. Of course, there was some work I think being done almost you know, at the same time or people started out on the East Coast. Was there any communication between Berkeley and the East Coast? No, no, we didn't, we weren't aware of any of that. Um, I didn't become aware of anything uh, of, of the work uh, in, in Boston until late in um, either 2011 or early 2012. So, I'd like to probably uh, skip ahead a little bit. In a recent uh, interview, I, I heard you say, sort of talk about four revolutions. Now, the treatment of the shelf therapeutics, fast diagnostics and drug discovery and preventive health. 
Maybe if you could just comment a little bit, you know, your thoughts on these four different uh, areas, how you see treatment uh, with CRISPR evolve. Well, you know, I think we're at an extraordinary moment with CRISPR because we're just over 10 years into the technology and we're in a year when I expect to see the first drug approvals um, for treating sickle cell disease and, and thalassemia using CRISPR, which is absolutely amazing. It's incredible to, to see patients already being impacted in a positive way by the technology. So that's that's very exciting. I think it's the beginning, really at the you know the very start of, of what will be possible here. And um, and I think that you know to make the technology truly impactful in the future, we have to increasingly be focused on things like how we make it affordable and accessible to people that can benefit from it. And then of course, how to ensure that as it as it you know continues to develop that it's safe and effective. And that's something, you know, when you talk about off the shelf and certainly making it more available, what are your thoughts there? Uh, because, of course, uh, for example, sickle cell disease, it's mostly uh, in sub-Saharan Africa or, or low middle income countries, uh, not you know, in the United States. So how, how, you would, how would you envision making it available, more accessible in, in those countries or in those areas? Well, I think, you know, we can look at um, examples for other therapeutics and vaccines where there's often a tiered pricing structure for different countries. So that's one one thing that we're very keenly interested in. Right now, uh, the Innovative Genomics Institute that I founded in 2015 is actually running a clinical trial of our own on, mm -hmm. on sickle cell disease. And our motivation there is to allow us to, to really fully develop technical approaches that will help reduce the cost. So for example, focusing on ways to deliver CRISPR that don't require bone marrow transplantation. So I think, you know, as, as we continue with that trial, one of our, our, our real goals there is to get to a point where we can partner appropriately with commercial outfits, but do so from the standpoint of, um, you know, having a, a tiered pricing structure that we would work with them to, to implement. So when you say that we would need a bone marrow transplant, can you, do you envision like an in vivo delivery system? Right. Yeah, that's right. Being able to actually do the editing directly in the patient without requiring all of the, you know, uh, hospitalization time and frankly distress to the patient that goes on currently when you have to replace bone marrow cells with edited cells. I'd like to like to then move on to the the other very very important aspect, and I think you were really uh, a spokesperson uh, for that uh, when you convened the first international summit on ethics uh, to discuss you know the potential uh, uh, germline editing, and of course right now there was just the the third summit uh, in uh, that just uh, finished, and what would you say? Uh, I think back then you said no, we need a prudent path forward. What do you think has evolved since 2015, your first uh, meeting? How has that your thinking evolved since then? Yeah, well, I think, you know, my thinking has evolved in the sense that um, I, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm a pragmatist, you know, I feel that um, we have to figure out a path forward that allows the technology to continue to advance and to have real, uh, you know, real world positive impact, and do whatever we can to mitigate risk. And I think that really involves, as you just pointed out, having international engagement 
making sure that we have scientists globally who are, are uh, you know, passionate about this and are speaking up about, you know, where the technology is headed and how it should be implemented in the future. Um, my own thinking is, you know, currently is that, you know, I think what we're seeing right now is that uh, the vast majority, if not all of the commercial use of CRISPR today in humans is for somatic cell editing, meaning editing that's affecting one individual without making heritable changes in people. Uh, will that change in the future? I mean, it could, but I do think that, you know, the real impact clinically for CRISPR, at least in the in the coming years is going to be um, that type of um, somatic cell editing. Right. Um, we all heard about in 2018, and I think you were one of the uh, people speaking with uh, Zhuangkui um, at that time. And were you? do you think something like this can happen again? Well, I think it could. I think, you know, what happened there is... Um, that, uh, you know, there was a very clear international pushback against that that announcement. And as you as you probably know, that scientist was actually arrested and jailed and his research uh, program was shut down. And so, you know, I think I think we just need to um, uh, continue to figure out how to how to move the, the science forward, as I said, in a responsible fashion. So. I couldn't, I couldn't, you know, there's sort of, I think that just sort of emphasizes how incredibly important it is to have international engagement on this, because that was, you know, having that um, 2018 announcement come in the context of uh, the earlier international meeting on human genome editing was a way for the international community to quickly uh, speak up and say, you know, this is unacceptable. And if you could also um, comment maybe a little bit on your uh, fantastic work on the diagnostics uh, aspect, especially for SARS-CoV-2, uh, once the, the pandemic hit, I think you you and uh, your institute were one of the first ones really implementing you know, very efficient uh, diagnostic tools. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, we um, you know, like many others, I think we, we uh, asked ourselves, what can we be doing with our scientific knowledge to help address the the challenge of this this global pandemic and and one of the ways that we felt would be most impactful was actually to set up a diagnostic testing facility so we actually still have that lab you know we set up that diagnostic lab it's a CLIA certified lab uh, we have a pathologist that runs it uh, we've just pivoted away from doing covid testing we're now doing testing of patient samples for um, our clinical trial uh, which is great but you know, I think it it really speaks to the the um, the need for scientists to look for ways that they can have real world impact with their research. I think the more that we can do that and show in real time the value of science, uh, the better. Mm -hmm. Now, the fourth um, uh, sort of uh, point uh, in, in your evolution uh, uh, talk you had given before was really sort of this preventive health. I mean, maybe you could comment on that. You know, for example, the impact in agriculture, modify mosquitoes. Right. <laughs> like a yeah. Gigantic impact now gene editing will have or has. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're raising a very important point. And that is that, you know, I think increasingly over over the next decade, let's say, we're going to see CRISPR being used not just to treat disease after it's happened, but asking, you know, how can we use that technology to prevent disease from happening in the first place? And you brought up a great example of being able to perhaps use it in insects to prevent the spread of mosquito-borne disease. I mean, that would be 
extraordinary to be able to use it in that way. And there already are, as you know, a number of research efforts going on on that front. Um, and then in plants, in agriculture, in uh, microbes that support the agricultural enterprise, again, I think huge opportunities there to have really positive impact. In fact, at our Innovative Genomics Institute, we have a big push to work on climate change. And um, some people say CRISPR for climate change. What, how, how are they? How are they connected? But they're they're very integral, uh, inter integrally connected in the sense that CRISPR will be a great technology for altering microbiomes and making them more uh, capable of supporting agricultural activities that don't won't uh, necessitate applying external fertilizers, as well as ensuring that there are you know, solutions that come about quickly for dealing with things like drought, pestilence, um, you know, and the nutritional value of food. Yeah, that just seems like an enormous opportunity for, for this technology. Right. I can't wait to see more. So now in 2020, you were, only, you were one of only a few women to share the Nobel Prize in the sciences. And of course it was two women at that time. How do you think the field has changed for women? Uh, throughout your career now, especially the past 10, 15 years? Oh, it's changed a lot. I, I think, um, you know, I continue to see more opportunities. Um, I think, you know, it's wonderful that uh, there are women in at all levels of science who are serving as mentors to, to others. That's, a, that's something that's extremely important for sure. Um, that being said, you know, is there still work to be done? Absolutely. You know, I think ensuring a diverse um, uh, workforce and, you know, diversity in STEM in general is critical. It's critical. Why? Well, because it's uh, not only it's the right thing to do, but it also makes for a more robust research effort. I've always found that in my own lab, and I think that's true very broadly. Uh, what advice would you give to young people, of course, especially young women starting careers in science today? My advice is to go for it. You know, I always tell tell my own students that um, that they just need to decide what it is they're passionate about doing, and don't let anyone dissuade them from doing it. I think that's that's been a, a guiding principle for me, for sure. And look, I mean, we all we all hit bumps in the road along the way, so I, I do think it's very important also to identify great mentors, uh, people that are going to provide support at those key moments, whether it's our our uh, life partners, our, our family members, our colleagues, our our uh, our, uh, our friends. It all, it, you know, it's all all part of the whole system that we have in place to make sure that um, you know that we're able to pursue our passions in life. And so, I think the more that students can look for those ways to build that kind of community, the better. Can you share with us a little bit? Do you have time to do anything outside of work, and what is it for you to relax? Um, yeah, I, it's very important, isn't it? I mean, I think, you know, finding balance in one's life, it's always challenging, <laughs> but, but it's also very, very important. So for me, it's always been a couple of things. One is hiking. I love hiking and, you know, I, I'm fortunate I live in the Berkeley Hills where I can get out pretty easily and, you know, get out among the redwoods, which is just great. And the other thing is gardening. You know, I love, uh, I love cultivating a few plants. It's usually just a few for me, but, um, you know, growing my own tomatoes every summer is a joy and uh, having some fresh lettuce to pick in the garden at night when I want to make a salad. It's a, you know, it's fun. And that's something that is just a, a great hobby for me. 
Oh, this is wonderful. I didn't know about that. I was going to ask you, was there, is there one thing most people don't know about you? <laughs> well, that, that could be one, yes. yeah, that they don't know about me. Um, that, yeah, that's, that's probably a good one. <laughs> thank you so much, uh, Dr. Doudna, and thank you for all you do uh, for the field, of course, uh, in gene editing and for really moving the field uh, forward uh, very uh, cautiously and uh, uh, really appreciate everything you've done uh, in this space. Thank you very much. Wow, thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. 